Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Technology Report. I'm your host, Vagum Radian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Paul Ernst, the cybersecurity lead at Rebellion Defense, tells us about China's recent hacking of the State Department's emails and how the nation should improve its cyber defenses. And Quentin Donnellan, the president of Defense and Space at Hypergiant, on how his company is helping the U.S. Air Force forge an intelligent command and control future. But first, tech headlines for the week. The Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency last week rolled out its joint collaborative environment to improve its partnerships with industry and enhance its access to cyber threat data. The National Institute of Standards and Technology on Monday added 40 potentially quantum-resistant algorithms as candidates for its post-quantum cryptography digital signature effort as the key agency works to prepare America's networks for operational advanced quantum computers. And 76% of nearly 1,300 executives surveyed by Hitachi Vantana feel their existing infrastructures won't be able to scale to meet future artificial intelligence and the demands that will go with it, with 60% saying they're overwhelmed by the data they're managing now. The report also notes that in another two years, large organizations will be storing at least 65 petabytes of data. Joining us now is Paul Ernst, a former U.S. Army intelligence officer who now serves as the cybersecurity lead for Rebellion Defense. Paul, thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Vago. Thanks for thanks for having me. Really appreciate it, and looking forward to this one. Yeah, indeed. Uh, you you come from a very very interesting uh, company, uh, and it's terrific having somebody from Rebellion on the program. Uh, before we get started, a word from our sponsors. Our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval uh, coverage. Uh, Paul, uh, thanks again uh, for joining us. uh, Last week, the U.S. government revealed that China had hacked uh, the State Department's uh, email accounts uh, to glean insights ahead of Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to Beijing, where he met with senior leaders, including uh, Xi Jinping. This is the sort of thing that's normally regarded as a legitimate intelligence uh, operation. That said, this is the exact threat that we've spent more than a decade uh, preparing for and trying to defend uh, against. How did the Chinese get in? And do we know with greater clarity uh, what it is that they got? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and really, it's the, you know, as you know, the China-backed, uh, you know, organization Storm, you know, 558, really a cyber espionage outfit that's really been focused on collecting sensitive in, uh, information by breaching email systems. And so, you know, from now understanding what that intent was, it's, you know, uh, you know, really they're focused on, you know, hoovering up as much information as they can. Uh, and you can, you know, be sure that they're and absolutely they're using you know advanced algorithms to make sense of that data and explore that data for for potential use in the future. But really, this this actor, what they did is they used uh, and they acquired a, a managed service accounts uh, key to forge tokens and access Outlook on the on the web. Uh, and then the actor uh, ex- exploited a token validation issue uh, to impersonate Azure Active Directory users and, and gained access to the enterprise email. Uh, and as you know, they were able to, to capture quite a bit of information from this attack. 
and and really you don't have to have that many breaches in order to you know as long as they're the right ones in order to glean a lot of uh information especially from an email account uh, unfortunately where people can can be very very candid about uh this that and the other thing and coordinating meetings and having access to schedules i mean it's really incredible uh the kind of information that that once upon a time used to be in a file of facts sorry to sound like an old timer there um what is it that we need to be doing better ultimately right each one of these breaches teaches us what our shortcomings are and how to improve what does this tell us across the enterprise yeah i think i think the big thing that this this highlights is is really the level of sophistication you know the cybersecurity environment is it's really a cat and mouse game so as as china advances their you know their approaches their ability to to get into systems you know they're testing out their their capabilities uh, most likely emulating, you know, our defenses that we have and figuring out ways to move around those defenses in a very quiet manner uh, to where they can be on the network for, for quite a period of time uh, and, you know, uh, highlighting the patients as well. And so for us, I think it's really, you know, implementing, you know, continuing to drive forward with implementing, you know, cybersecurity strategies, different capabilities that would defend against this, uh, continue to understand that threat. Uh, and then roll out, you know, both, uh, you know, to people process and technology piece. And so rolling out the, the capabilities, the most advanced capabilities to defend against these threats. Uh, it's training our people and ensuring we're continuously training our people. Uh, and then looking at our, our, our processes and policies that we have in place to, to ensure that we're accounting for all this. Uh, and I think the big thing, too, is, is the ability to stress test these the, the people process uh, technology and, and policies as well. Um, you know, we've got red teams that will do this and act as the threat actors to really validate those, those systems, uh, evaluate the policies, the uh, preparedness and collaboration of security personnel, uh, the cooperation between both internal and external security providers, the vulnerabilities, gaps, security tools and defenses. Uh, and then how we're responding to these attacks. And so uh, red teams are fantastic for doing this to be able to, to stress test the our implementation. Uh, but the thing is they're, they're really a high demand, low density resource. So really how do we think about the continuously validating you know, what we're implementing over time? Um, you know, one example of that would be you know, implementing the, the zero trust architecture strategy um, right. and, and continuing to do these things. I'm, I'm going to uh, get to the uh, zero trust uh, strategy uh, bit of it, which is you know really at the heart of the administration's uh, national uh, cyber strategy. But I want to draw attention, you know, over the last um, you know five or six hundred or eight hundred days or whatever it's been, you know, a lot of focus on the Russians uh, and uh, you know whether it was colonial pipeline or ransomware attacks. Uh, but the Chinese actually have been also able to mount some uh, significant operations right into, and they don't do anything without a plan, right? So there's the wide scale, uh, you know, vacuum up everything approach that they've uh, had. But then they also get very specific, right? Blinken's going to meet with Xi. What is it he's going to discuss? Let's penetrate the State Department. And then recently we saw um, last month, actually, a, a really significant Chinese um, uh, attack on the telecommunications companies that serve uh, the nation and its traffic. What do we learn about that? And where does that fit into what the Chinese are trying to accomplish? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think they're they're really, you know, trying to accomplish, you know, two two different fronts here. And so from, you know, from from really the, the first one being, you know, they definitely have a political agenda. So when they launch these tech at a, you know, at a very specific point in time, and again, that highlights the sophistication, you know, how they're able to to launch these attacks. Uh, and then be successful at, at a point in time that's that's meaningful for for political advantage. So 
they're obviously, you know, they have intent behind these. They want to see our reaction. They want to, you know, show that they can have leverage against situations. And, uh, and I think that really, it's them sending a message that, that we can be reached in the, in the cyber domain. So that's, that's first off is, is really the intent there. Uh, and then on the second front of that is, to your point, being able to vacuum up all of that data. Um, and you can imagine, you know, with the, the advancements in machine learning and artificial intelligence on what they're able to gain, uh, the information they're able to gain there. They're able to, to understand relationships, how our organiz organizations operate. Uh, you know, who's, you know, having conversations with who, which potentially opens up other targets in the future uh, for a point in time that's very strategic for them, uh, both politically uh, and for gaining additional information to, to enhance their understanding of, you know, our, our operations internally in the, in the United States. We have been, um, Paul, shields up with the Russians, right? I mean, we, we've had that warning as the war was coming and every step the United States and its allies take, right? I mean, there've been some attacks. At the same time, while that focus maybe has been on Russia, now we're seeing all this Chinese activity that's hitting us uh, as as well. How, you know, and, and then individuals now, right? I mean, anybody in Washington or who's been in Washington for a long time uh, can be on the receiving end of malicious activity, whether it's coming from Russia or China or China through Russia or, or Russia through China or someplace else. Um, how is the threat landscape changing, right? It, you know, artificial intelligence has been a very, very powerful cyber defense tool uh, that mm -hmm. we've uh, been using for a while. But then again, as you said, it is also an offensive tool and we're as good as anybody, if not the best on the planet uh, at, at, at using some of these tools. How's the threat landscape changing? Because the last two years have been kind of an interesting two years where nation state actors, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, indeed Iran, as well as North Korea, have managed to score some, some pretty decent hits despite our improving security levels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, with, uh, you know, the advancements and, and, you know, one one advancement would be in the in the AI world would be, you know, you look at large language models, you look at the ability uh, for on the offensive side, the ability for these really attackers to to aggregate those different procedures, different attacks, to be able to test those against the, the defenses that, you know, we would have in place. Uh, and really machine learning ju just really accelerates the ability for these these attackers to come up with, uh, you know, plans of action to be able to execute and not just one of plan of action, uh, you know, because that may be, you know, stopped or, or mitigated on, on our side of the network, but many, many, you know, courses of action that they can, you know, employ to, to be successful. And so what would have taken, you know, weeks to be able to de develop and, and plan some of these in a tabletop exercise, you know, then gets, you know, necked down to, you know, hours. And so the ability to, to move quickly uh, and the advancement of the threats uh, from this, it has accelerated, and I think it will continue to accelerate. Uh, and we will have to be incredibly vigilant uh, to ensure that we can we can defend against these uh, defend against these attacks. Um, we we have seen, uh, you know, just in the last week, CISA rolled out its joint collaborative environment uh, to improve threat warning. Uh, the National Institutes of Standards uh, and Technology, as everybody knows, who's central to the cyber uh, ecosystem, has just added 40 quantum resistant algorithms uh, to its roster, growing roster of cyber. Uh, tools. And of course, you know, as we talked about, you know, obviously there's AI, large language models, machine learning, and all, all of that stuff going. Where is the changing nature of the threat you just discussed driving the nature of the defenses we need to be employing? And what mm -hmm. are, Paul, the best payoff? 
ones, right? I mean, if everything's important, nothing's important, right? So what what's the uh, what what's the right model from your standpoint? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. No, I think it's you know with with CISA and they're you know being able to identify the threats early, the the behaviors that these threats are implementing against our systems. You know, quantum resistant uh, you know capabilities put into place, and that is that is fantastic. And so I think we really need to accelerate the speed in which we are able to take, hey, here's here's the threat that's out there. Here's what they're doing. We need to be able to implement our capabilities and then test those capabilities against those threats and, and really increase that cycle in which we do that. Because um, we can have all the threat, you know, early threat warning that we have, but if we're not implementing those pieces in a timely fashion, the adversary is going to be able to find holes in, in the system uh, and, and be able to, to, to gain an advantage, uh, you know, from, from their attacks. And so I think the big piece there is being able to, to understand the threat, create a fluid process for implementing capabilities from a technology standpoint. It's also looking at our, our processes, our procedures and policies that we have in place and update those uh, with the threat in mind to be able to ensure that you know, our policies in place uh, would really you know, be able to, to ensure that we're not... You know, uh, we're validating that that we can defend against these things. We can respond in a timely fashion. Uh, and then the last piece of it is really training our people. So, um, you know, and I liken it to, you know, we've got folks that are doing all sorts of different training, but, you know, if, if you look at an environment that's incredibly competitive, the way that we really enhance the tradecraft of our defenders is the ability to emulate these attacks and be able to throw them against systems where we've Im- implemented these defenses and then continuously in a fluid feedback loop, be able to, to test, refine, uh, and, and then train our, our, our valued cyber defenders uh, against these emerging threats. The administration earlier this year uh, revealed its uh, new national cyber strategy, and its budget request is now working its way uh, through Congress. What's your take on how Congress is responding to this, right? Um, what is the legislative and the budget outlook here? Uh, given that each one of these incidents demonstrates where we need actually to be making more of a national uh, investment, where we need to be cooperating more between public and private, you know, more public and private partnerships. What, what, what do you see that, that you like and where, where do you see maybe room for, improve, uh, room for improvement? Yeah, I think it's, you know, really the focus here is in ensuring that we're, you know, we can defend against the adversary, we're resilient to those uh, emerging threats, and then uh, really value value aligned as well. And so when we look at the approach, you know, really focusing on, you know, A, we have to defend our critical infrastructure because that there you start to look at, you know, there can be a significant cost and, and really an impact to, you know, to our nations and our populations will to fight uh, if you start attacking us, you know, you know, on the home front and in, in, imposing a cost there. Um, you know, really the focus on on being able to disrupt those threat actors. So again, kind of going back to you know, implementing capabilities, uh, you know, ensuring that our processes are up to snuff, uh, and then also that, you know, our, our people are trained there. And so when you look at this, you know, incredible investment across the board, you know, large enterprises, the government, you know, are, are implementing these capabilities. But there's also, when you start to go down in a very large environment in a collaborative space, 
uh, that really t- is a team sport. You know, defending the cyber domain is absolutely a team uh, team sport. You know, our attack surface is is massive. Whether that's across you know DoD infrastructure, it's across state and local, it's across your critical in- uh, critical infrastructure, power, you know, financial financial institutions, and getting everybody on the same page. And I think this strategy really drives forward with with aligning us as a team sport. Uh, and I think there's a, a lot more room with, you know, on the investment side of it, how do we ensure that, you know, and, and think through where the ad, where could the adversary go? What costs could they impose? And then ensuring everything from, you know, the largest enterprises down to, let's call it state and local, that we can be aligned to be able to support, uh, you know, our personnel, fundings there to implement capabilities, fundings there to train the personnel to, to ensure that we're resilient and really drive forward for, you know, for the United States to have really increase our, our cyber readiness and our resilience um, from where it's at today and, and just bring that up to another, another level and continue to push, push uh, so that we're, we're making ourselves better. Um, one of the challenges, though, Paul, is w- without being uh, disrespectful uh, to the government, is the the difficulty of sort of getting cyber as a, as a service. Uh, the, the department has a tendency of wanting to own things. The government has a tendency of wanting to own things as opposed to actually buying the service of cyber. It's one of the things you guys do is bring cyber as a service uh, to try uh, to, to help your clients improve their security. I'm not trying to make an advertisement, by the way, for you, Chris, and the whole team uh, here. But you know, is, is the government fundamentally changing its approach to understanding that when it has an industrial base that's willing to make the investment to bring them the cutting edge tools, that it actually buys those cutting edge tools as opposed to trying to replicate the wheel internally. I've, I've started to see, you know, the government really go out and start to, you know, do a great job in evaluating those, those capabilities. And they've started to onboard, you know, best of breed tools in, into the environment. Um, but to the point of you can have the, you can have the best capabilities, you can have the best tools, um, and, and, you know, you're implementing them. And, and I think I've seen the government do, you know, do a great job with, with the ability to, to really test uh, and verify as they, as they roll these tools out. And I think where we come in is, is really the, the, the ability to stress test the implementation of those fantastic capabilities. Uh, so if you're, not, if you're not continuously monitoring and continuously validating the environment, which is, which is you know, you know, really near and dear to my heart is really looking at, you know, how do you take what the threat, you know, what CIS is pushing out is, is a threat. Take that into being able to, you know, stress test your, your organization and, and create an automated fashion in which we, you can launch these attacks against your network before the adversary does. So these great capabilities you've put in place, uh, you're able to then validate the systems, uh, you know, that were implemented yesterday uh, and then to defend against an adversary and prepare for them that that's going to be continuing to move forward and, and find those gaps against those, you know, fantastic capabilities. Paul, thanks so very much for joining us. Absolute pleasure having you on the program and look forward to having you back on. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Valgo. Really appreciate it. And joining us now is Quentin Donnellan, the president of Defense and Space at Hypergiant, an innovative company that is using AI to help the U.S. Air Force achieve its combined joint all-domain command and control aspirations. Quentin, thanks so very much for joining us. Vago, thanks for having me, uh, and thank you uh, for the well wishes. We are excited. Your CEO, Mike uh, Betzer, uh, has been uh, focusing on, uh, you know, you you guys were founded uh, as uh, sort of a different artificial intelligence company, uh, and I remember uh, talking to uh, Mike 
uh, at South by uh, Southwest about some of the really incredible things you guys are doing and how your technology is scaling and how it could actually help the Defense Department change uh, the way that it does business. That's obviously the goal of all artificial intelligence uh, companies. Tell us about uh, tell the audience a little bit about Hypergiant and what makes you guys uh, different and what do you guys do differently maybe than others are doing? Yeah, um, thanks, Vago. You know, Hypergiant, we've been around for a few years, but we really take a design-centric approach to all the things we do, including uh, delivering AI software solutions where they are applicable. Uh, our focus is really sitting down with human operators and understanding what is what are their mission threads, what are their pain points, and really trying to capture the value of something like a data-driven decision tool, whether that be AI, ML, uh, a visualization, or whatnot. Uh, for the Air Force, we're working with uh, cloud-based command and control to really understand what our Air Force operators doing behind a screen, uh, what mission uh, threads are they trying to execute against, and how can we uh, add efficiency to uh, their workflows. When you look at you know maybe more traditional AI or data science-centric problems, you start with the data set, you look for patterns in the data, you try and uh, capture some efficiency boost in pattern recognition, um, anomaly detection, um, maybe replicating some cognitive load for uh, human, uh, uh, human work streams. But it's very, you know, starting from the data and working right, as I like to say. And Hypergiant kind of takes the approach of starting from the decision and working left, figuring out what is that decision process who is sitting in a seat? What do they need? Um, you know, what is their decision time time frame? And then backing into things like visualizations, and then maybe data decision aids, and maybe AI. Because if you start with the decision, you could really figure out um, you know value uh, from the get go. Um, so uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, the U.S. Air Force contract, uh, what it is uh, you're doing, and why it could really change the way the Air Force uh, does intelligence? Uh, yeah, so what's really interesting about the program that we're attached to, so this program is cloud-based command and control. And the idea is that the Air Force, uh, and this is typical for a lot of uh, op like large-scale enterprise operations, uh, has found itself over the years of fielding systems with dozens of different uh, disparate silos. An operator who walks into NORAD or NORTHCOM, uh, historically, you'd sit down uh, behind a desk of 12 plus different screens. Each screen has some interesting and, and vital data feed for the mission. Weather is over here on the left, ground-based radars uh, for you know, military track uh, provenance is over here. You've got a messaging tool somewhere over, over there. Uh, and you've got to look at these 12 different screens and figure out what's going on. You know, uh, do I need to take action on something that looks hostile? Do I need to add some more certainty into something um, that is just kind of unknown? Um, and, and being able to do that while looking across 12 different, 12 different screens turns out to be um, almost impossible. Um, some of the, the only places where you can stitch together the right uh, information is on a, on, a, on a whiteboard or on a piece of paper. Um, and so what we do is, is we, take, we take the approach of using a user interface as the unifying kind of pane of glass, if you will, to bring all the information, all the decision aids, all of the effects, all of the C2 systems into a single view for that operator to really understand what on earth is going on um, and be able to make decisions. How scalable uh, is this? 
because uh, you guys have uh, been uh, obviously are looking to grow, to grow across each of the military services. Um, from your standpoint, how does this um, this approach with the Air Force scale to what the other services are doing? Because everybody talks about uh, the importance, for example, of JADC2 or now CJADC2, right, for combined joint all domain command and control. The challenge is everybody is still going their own way and nobody has yet figured out the best way to sort of stitch all of this together, given it's a very, very big problem, right? And so as Frank Kendall, Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall has said, we have to understand what's the problem we're trying to solve if we're gonna do that. From, from your standpoint, what is it you're doing with the Air Force that then applies and opens the door to what you wanna do with everybody else? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned, uh, Secretary Kendall, that this program that we're delivering is his number two operational imperative, right? And that is graduating beyond this innovation theater of showing some cool little toy program that solves a very specific C2 need and moving to, uh, in, in Secretary Kendall's words, operationally focused, you know, battle management. Um, but you're right, the, the Air Force is fielding their JADC2 solution, but the Army, you know, with Project Convergence and the Navy with Project Overmatch, there is this idea that if we, if we go hard on these, these different disparate systems and end up creating um, these, these very robust silos that don't talk to each other, then you have battle management pictures that aren't cohesive, and that's a problem. Uh, so, so to your to your question about scale, it is about scale. Like we have to be able to scale within the Air Force um, to be able to, you know, present a a global picture for that user. But we also have to scale across these different historical silos. Um, and what we are excited about with the cloud-based command and control program and the way that we've structured the software, you know, fundamentally how we deliver software is using modern tech stacks using modern software languages that allow us to deploy uh, onto any cloud platform, onto any compute environment, so that wherever you have a screen, um, wherever you have a mission need to do tactical operations, if you will, you can install this software. And so that, that's, kind of, that's kind of table stakes, if you will. Um, there's another version of scaling too, and that is even just within the Air Force, it's not just about scaling to as many computers as possible. When you're inside a joint operations center, you need to scale to a number of different users. Um, you know, a, a lot has been said about this "quote unquote" fictional single pane of glass, but but I'm here to tell you, you know, that's kind of a, a red herring. What a commander needs to see and what a air defender needs to see are two totally different things. And and if you're trying to deliver a single pane of glass that a, that a commander can use and an air defender can use, you're just not going to get there. Um, and so the system has to be flexible to scale to the different user personas at the same time. And, and we, we do that as a first principle. Um, let me take you to your broader uh, growth uh, strategy. Um, history is full of a lot of companies that were doing things uniquely and, and had uh, great ideas, but ultimately don't end up uh, crossing, as it were, that valley of death. You guys are kind of trying to you know, surmount that challenge. Uh, right where you guys are too big for Sibbers and yet, um, you know, to, to get to the other side and to be able to grow and to prosper. Um, from, you know, you've been working with the company since its founding or, or almost since its founding. What are, what is that strategy if you're looking out there five years, 10 years about where it is you guys want to be in this ecosystem? 
Well, that's a great question. Um, it's complex, um, but I think we have a pretty good idea of what delivering success to the Department of Defense to start with uh, looks like, uh, and then also leveraging dual-use technology to commercialize these solutions. And, and the first tenet of the plan is really leaning into government rights licensing, um, making sure that what we deliver to the, the government as it scales does not scale prohibitively in cost. Um, you know, on the commercial side, there is the pretty classic model for software as a service. As more users use the software, you pay more um, because you've got more consumption. And that works to a point, but, you know, with, with the way that the DoD acquires capability, we, we want to lean into this more nascent model of leveraging government purpose rights, uh, government unlimited rights, making sure that as we scale, we don't put ourselves into a position where uh, the license uh, actually prevents the scale of the software. So that's one. We are, we are full into leveraging government purpose rights. Uh, and the second thing is, you know, when you consider the problem we're trying to solve for the Air Force, and that is coming into a network operations center or joint operations center, helping an operator and their commanders go from dozens of different screens down to just one or, uh, you know, a couple very precise uh, pictures of the battle space, that problem exists not just within the Air Force and not just within the DOD, but it exists on the commercial world as well. Uh, if I have to manage uh, time-critical food distribution, for example, or logistics, uh, or if I'm a commercial airline, I all have the similar. I all have a similar workflow of trying to digest uh, what what is almost too much data, trying to digest um, a bunch of disparate decision aids, AI and ML, if you will. Uh, and stitch together courses of action that lead to efficient business outcomes. And the tools that I'm using, you know, my dozens of different screens um, are just inadequate. So as we scale within the DOD, making sure that there is that capability transfer between what we're delivering to the government as government purpose rights, um, and then also to the commercial sector, um, I think that's where we'll get the best of, of, both, of both worlds. Uh, and we'll be able to deliver something to, uh, to America that is, you know, best of breed, uh, and still sustain ourselves uh, with a business model. Uh, we, we've got about 30 seconds in, and you know, you guys are working with NASA, uh, DHS, uh, as, as well as um, a number of major uh, companies, whether on the oil side, Shell, um, I think GE, uh, Boeing, um, and, and others. Is anybody in the market doing what it is you guys are doing? Uh, is anybody in the market doing what it is you guys are doing the way you guys are doing it? Let me put it that way. Candidly, I don't think so. Um, you know, what we see, you know, when we talk about design, typically um, from some very well-architected engineering solutions, don't consider design as a first-class principle. Like it's, it's often you'll find a user interface that's slapped onto a very well-engineered data tool, uh, or you have a data tool that was used for kind of an Intel or analyst use case, and they try to shoehorn it into uh, a tactical operations picture. So we feel pretty confident that the approach we're taking sitting down with a user, whether that be a warfighter uh, or someone sitting in one of these other operations centers and understanding what are their mission needs and starting from that decision process and working backwards versus you know, what we see as the norm, starting from the data and working uh, to the right towards the decision. Quentin, uh, thanks very much. Congratulations to you and the whole team uh, there. Give my best to Mike uh, and uh, very much uh, looking forward to uh, staying in touch and following you guys. Uh, your guys' growth. Uh, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Valga. It was a pleasure.